Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Gonna take it. Two legends in basketball analysis with over 70 years combined experience. This is the Bob Ryan and Jeff Goodman podcast. NBA, some college, a little bit of everything. You know, what can I say? But it wasn't going to happen here with him. I was okay with it because it wasn't about talent, I didn't think. All right, let's get right to it. All right, welcome in another edition of the Ryan and Goodman podcast. I'm Jeff Goodman. He's Bob Ryan. And uh, this is Sam Smith, and uh, I'm sure you are familiar with him uh, by now, no matter who you are, no matter what age you are, no matter what generation uh, you are and what generation you watched in the NBA. Uh, I've got my Jordan Rules copy uh, on my desk here, and I know Bob has his as well. And we really appreciate you, Sam, uh, joining us. We know you've been busy. And the best thing, listen, the best thing, we set you up on Zoom, so you should be forever (laughs) indebted to us. And that's going to be actually the most amazing thing of this, that people are going to look and say, you've got Sam Smith to figure out Zoom. Listen, we can, do the, we, we can solve the virus now. I got Bob Ryan and Sam Smith. Like, like, right. like this is like world peace, what I've done. This is General Sarnoff here, Sam. This guy is a technical whiz. It's time to, it's time to have him work on the virus now. Okay, that's right. So, so what's your what's your life been like, Sam, uh, since this uh, doc started uh, that is aired on ESPN, and we're four episodes in, and uh, you are the most relevant media mem- member on the uh, on the face of the planet uh, over the last couple of weeks. What, what's what's life been like? It, you know, it's it's it, it, you're naive in a sense, just like when the Jordan rules came out. Uh, it was so unexpected to me at the time because, as, as Bob probably knows, when you're going through something, when you're dealing something and it's your day-to-day life, it's not special because you say, well, that's just me. You know, what's the big deal? I'm doing it. You know, it's like, it's like when I was at the Gettysburg Address and Lincoln is kind of droning on and it's raining and I'm going, get, let's get this over with already. You know, and, yeah, and so, you know, we knew about Actually, when they came around last year and did the uh, interview for the documentary, they were saying the last dance and 90. And I'm thinking to myself, 10 parts on 97, 98. It wasn't that interesting. So I, I wasn't thinking about, you know, being, being you know, going through the whole dynasty, which obviously made sense. And like I think I said, told you a little before we were talking, Jeff, I feel like, you know, I've been in the same place. I've been to Chicago Tribune since 2000, left in 2008, and now I write for the Bulls website, which has been great for me. But 
uh, I feel like I've been in the same spot and the circus just came back to where I was standing. I, I didn't do anything. And all of a sudden, all these, you know, all these characters showed up again, jumping around, you know, on trapezes and making all these spectacular things. And I'm saying, whoa, whoa, you know, I'm right in the middle of it again. How long did they interview for, Sam? You know, it was interesting how it happened, Bob. Uh, and, and it would have been fine. I've written, you know, I've written three books on Jordan. I wrote a, uh, one about five, four or five years ago called There Is No Next. And sort of my, my view of the end of my Homeric trilogy, which was not quite Homer, but it was about, okay, I'm wrapping this thing up in an oral history of his career. And, you know, it, was, it came out well. Um, and so then they were doing, and so I've done enough Jordan kind of thing. And I feel like, okay, let me move on here. And um, so they had done a lot of, people had been asking me, Phil, who I keep in touch with, had done an interviews and Jerry Reinsdorf, who I see around with the Bulls and, you know, some of the players. And they had never, you know, reached, reached out to me. So I thought, this is great. You know, I don't really want to deal with this. I don't want to get involved. And I had enough when the Jordan rules came out and everything that succeeded through then. And then they came around kind of late about last fall. I guess it was in the fall. Uh, and called and said, hey, can we sit down and do something? And you know how it is, Bob. You do a lot of these documentaries, the bad boy things, and I'm sure you, did, you know you did with Bird and the Magic. And, you know, they talk to you for a couple, two hours, and then you're on screen for like 11 seconds. Yeah. And so you never really think much of it. They say, oh, yeah, you know, I've, and I knew they were doing like 100 interviews, and they were talking to celebrities and, you know, all these rapper guys from Chicago, Kenny Wester people I've never heard of, you know, who grew up in Chicago. And I know the, these people are all in it. So I'm figuring I'm not going to be in this thing, you know, Phil and Reinsdorf and, you know, Scotty and all, you know, so, so, so I don't even remember what they were at, you know, and I was been, actually, I've been watching it. I'm thinking, well, Oh, I said that. I, that's interesting. I didn't know I said that. So um, it, it actually toward the end, they, they were a little uncomfortable with it, but, so the guy was talking to me. We were having a nice talk for a couple hours. And then toward the end, because I realized, you know, they hadn't been around. I said, well, hey, let me ask you something, uh, you know, because my, my history with Michael. I said, did you have to ask Michael, you know, uh, permission to talk to me? And I, like, he, yeah, he's kind of offered around a little bit. He says, well, we didn't have to, but we did. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, what did he say? He said, well, I don't give a crap who you talk to. Talk to you every you want. Wow. <laughs> I'm surprised. Well, I did a little research here on you, Mr. Smith, and and um, at the time of the Jordan rules, uh, you approached. Correct me. I, I want to see if this is the way it went. That you you approached him uh, and said, you know, that laid it out. That I, if you have a problem, let me. He, you had one conversation with him, and never again did he bring it up through the rest of your time covering the Bulls. Is that the way it worked out? Yeah. Uh, well. Uh, yeah, it's, yes. Yes and no. We never had a conversation about the book, never once. He's never said a word about it. He's never asked me about it. He's been very professional about it. Because I, I was on the beat, back on the beat. Oh, yeah, you had a long time to go with him after that. I never left. And so what happened was I, I actually was, uh, which was the one little resentment I always have when people say, well, the, you know, there was a deep throat. There's a Horace Grant was your deep throat or something, which was completely on. Before... When I started in journalism, I was a government and investigative reporter, first in Washington, uh, Indiana, and then in Washington, D.C. And I covered Congress for about four years and did investigative projects. 
And so then I got into sports in a large part influenced by Bob Ryan, who I'd read for many years at the Globe and used to go down the newsstand in Washington and pick up the Sunday Globe and read all those great Sunday Notes columns. And, you know, Bob was one of my inspirations for what I wanted to do when I got into sports. So then from my, from my investigative work and my, my, edit, my first editor when I was doing that work made a point. He said, well, if you were to write these stories, people could go to jail, you, you change people's lives. You got to go and see them the day the story comes out. You go stand in front of them and you say to them, because in effect, the symbolism was you have to stand behind what you write. And that was always the message to me. So when the book came out, well, now it was chaos in Chicago because the narrative was the run's over. This is a one and done now because Sam Smith has blown up the team. He's exposed all this internal division and they can never win. And too bad, Chicago, if you've got anybody to blame, point, he's the guy. You. <laughs> Anyways, so things were a little tense at the time. Uh, but anyway, so I walked up to Jordan in the locker room, and you remember, Bob, the scene, he, the, he, the players were always going through their tickets. You know, he's had all his tickets, and he's got his head down. And I said, hey, just want to let you know that uh, I'm going to be here. If you got any questions, if you got any problems with, you know, with here, um, I'm here. I'll talk to you about it, whatever. He never looked up. Never said a word, but and it was interesting. A couple of the other players, you know, because they're watching now. Everyone's watching this. Oh yeah, and 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 uh, then Bill Cartwright, a BJ, um, Dennis Hobson, called, "Hey Sam, come on over here," you know. And I went over and chatted, and you know, because even though, and I think you've seen the divisions come out, and Michael's been fine with them because his point was, "Hey." You know, I had to help. I had to be a leader. Leader is not your good friend. Leader has to help you, drag you to the next step. You know, as you know, Bob, Larry wasn't exactly the closest all the time with Kevin or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the point was, what can I do to help motivate my team? And I think, you know, that was part of the thing. But a lot of those guys back then didn't always appreciate, you know, the way Michael, uh, I don't say took him for granted, but, you know, with his sharp tongue, you know, uh, kind of pushed him in his, his way. Uh, but to Michael's credit then, because he, he, I'm not, nobody's winning a fight with Michael Jordan if you get in a fight with Michael Jordan. And I wasn't, it wasn't my idea to, you know, to create a feud or anything, but, and I was still going to be there. So I still had to ask questions and he, he answered, he would answer me like he did anyone else. Hey, Sam, sometimes you say, Sam, yeah, that's true. Or something like that. It was oh, never, you know, never, could have, you know, he could have done a Rasheed Wallace or Russell Westbrook. Next question, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the immature stuff that the, you see in this year or previous years, and never did any of that. But never, never once has said anything to me, to me about that book. With currently no NBA, NHL, or Major League Baseball, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Bet Online still has hundreds of places to wager, from their online casino to poker and blackjack all open 24 hours a day, and all online. Sports aren't totally done. There's still mixed martial arts, golf, eSports, XFL, and many more. So if you're into entertainment, you can still bet an American Idol, the elections, the spelling bee, and even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. Be sure to use the promo code CLNS50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus in your first deposit. Bet online, your full access wagering solution. What's your relationship with him now, Sam? And has it just been a, I mean, I assume you haven't dealt with him much over the years, 
but if you've seen him, when you've seen him, has it just been a professional kind of relationship now where you say hello and, and, and move on? Well, what I did after, you know, after the book came out, I realized I'm going to have to be there. And, and we had a good relationship in, uh, in, in the eighties when I'm traveling. And I, I think that's why he was bothered in, in effect. But, you know, as, as you guys know, you're, you're not there to be their friends. And we weren't, we weren't friends. We were business friends, you know, in that sense. But I was still a journalist, and I was doing my job. I was there for the public. I was there not to protect him. But he, he felt that I violated trust by, in effect, you know, I wouldn't say we were close, but, you know, back then, you're traveling together all the time. You go out to dinner with guys. And, and I didn't violate any of those. I, the point of the Jordan rules was it's about basketball. And it's about interrelationships within basketball. I didn't write about any off the court stuff. I didn't write about family or wives, children, none, none of that. All the stuff that he's, you could tell, he's kept out of this documentary. There's nothing about his marriage. There's been nothing about his kids. And so I, and there was none of that in any of the books either, basically. basically. And so, you know, I felt that I did, you know, for him a fair journalistic job. But anyway, so from that point on, there was no more small talk, you know, Hey, Mike, you know, you missed this shot or something. Cause you'd say something to him back then we could joke. And then of course he, he would come back with a line and he would go out and hit four shots in a row and point to you and say, see, you didn't know what you're talking about. And you know, like that little scene they played uh, where he came up to me and the other beat writers before the game and said, you know, he knows our predictions. He knows we all predict them. Mm-hmm. Took care of you, took care of you. Now it's your turn. Yeah. And that stuff all the time and stuff you never saw from anybody, you know, Larry would do that stuff. Larry, I was going to say, right. The two of you had this, I mean, the two yeah. of you had trash talking elite level superstars that you heard that. And most people didn't. That, that, I mean, that to me is fascinating. No, right? yeah, that wasn't magic or, or Julius. That was Larry or Michael. Yes. No, it's interesting how these figures, Jeff, they fall into your life. You know, I was 10 years into the job when Larry walked in and, and I wasn't prepared for the scope of what it was going to mean for my career. In a sense, I wound up writing more words about Larry Bird than any other subject in a 44 year career of writing. I'm still writing on occasionally on Sunday still. So as it's ongoing, but I, Larry Bird became, I didn't know that was going to happen in 1979 when he walked in uh, into my life. And, and obviously Sam, you had no idea. God, way back when that there was going to be a figure that would such as Michael Jordan, you didn't know it was going to be Michael Jordan, but no, and he didn't, you know, interesting. You had no idea these kind of people are going to walk into your life. Right. And you're right. And, and it envelops it. And, you know, Michael always used to joke uh, when things come up, he said, there you all are making money on me. And of course we would say, well, you seem to be doing pretty well too. <laughs> you know, uh, but that first week, interestingly, I you know, went up to do the feature in his apartment. So I walk in and he's ironing. And I think this is a put on, you know, for the story. Once it give me, you know, something in color to write about it. I said, what's the deal with the ironing board? You know, he says, well, you know, iron my clothes. I said, ah, well, you know, yeah, you know, it's just for me. Right. No, no, no. He said, you know, in high school, I, I, I you know, never dated much. And, and I got these big ears and, you know, I was embarrassed by my looks. And so I never thought I'm getting married. So I took home economics, you know, so he said, you know, I do my ironing and I do my sewing and cooking and I do all that stuff. Now, of course, he didn't have to, as it turned out years later, you know, but, but that, you know, that's how sort of innocent he was. And probably in a lot of respects, how Larry was when he first well, came. Larry, Larry's answer to that was he cut his own lawn. 
Right. You could drive by Newton Street and 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 see him out there. It's the neighbors saw him. It was a, and that was because, well, a he was cheap. He wasn't going to hire anybody to do something <laughs> he could do himself. I, I, I said thrifty. That's a better word. That's a more polite way of. Putting so was Michael. It. But he was very thrifty. And and but anyway, but that that was a common touch that he that he never lost. You know, ever Larry. And anyway, but that's interesting. Uh, how did Phil react to the book? It was interesting, you know, and, and uh, Phil is obviously a great part of the book. And, and if you read the book, you see, it, it really is probably the hero of the book. Because the, the narrative of the story, in effect, is you've got this individual guy who's this great star that, that you know, overshadows everybody. Michael Jordan's, you know, shadow erases, you know, erases everybody else. And here's Phil trying to drag him along to this concept, which, you know, even he talked about, you know, in the documentary they've showed where he, he doubted the triangle, uh, the concept, equal, you know, equal opportunity offense. He, you know, he made light of, don't throw the ball to Bill. Why, why do I want Bill Cartwright with the ball with five seconds to go, you know, where he, you know, can't. And so, you know, all these elements that Phil is trying to bring to Michael. And, and, and so, and I, I knew Phil actually, I, I, when I first got into sports in the early eighties, I did a continental basketball association feature where I went to Albany, mm-hmm. a team that was in Gary, Indiana and spent a lot of time with Phil and Charlie Rosen with the Albany Patroons. So Phil kind of became my old timer NBA contact. So mm-hmm. when I was doing some NBA stuff, I'd call Phil and get some back. So and I got to know him well when he came, you know, to, uh, to be an assistant with Chicago of all things. And, you know, and then when he was having issues with Doug, you know, he would call me at night and we would talk about. So I, so I, I knew I, I developed a strong relationship with Phil before some of the others, in effect. Mm-hmm. And then I think, I think what Phil realized, and I'm not sure, we've never talked about this, Phil or I, but my sense was, because he was filling me in on a lot of stuff. He had to be, if you read that book, I had a lot of background that, is is coming from people that were not players, you know. And I, and I knew Johnny Bach for years. He's from Brooklyn, and I'd known him for many years. And uh, you know, I, we traveled back then, Bob. We were in coach, so oh, you know, and They didn't name it for the coaches, but we sat with the coaches. So I I, I always had a seat, be, you know, be, between Johnny and Tex. Wow. So I was always sitting on the plane, getting you know, Tex would bring me the original version of the triangle of the triple post offense book he wrote, literally the one he signed for his mother, and he just, <laughs> he op- he would open it and show me. We go through pages and he explain me the you know, the rules, and so you know I'm sitting in this group of people on the plane all the time, getting this basketball education. It was remarkable. It was you can't get anything like that anymore. It was amazing. Right, I can relate but, to that. Yeah, exactly. I always, I've always felt that, you know, Phil, as smart as he was, realized Michael was growing so big and he had to draw him back to the group, keep him in the crowd. And one tactic I thought he used, and, you know, I'm sure Jerry Krause didn't like it as well, is that, hey, you got to trust us, trust the group, trust the team. And in effect, that was the message with the triangle. It's about the group. It's about everyone. So if you make the outsiders the enemy, you know, the management, the media, all these, you look inside. So I thought Phil was operating on so many different levels that mm-hmm. sometimes he would tell me things that ended up in the newspaper or book 
that were designed to bring Michael back toward the group and make us look as the outsiders looking to undermine him. It, it, I don't, I don't know if that's true, Never. but Bill is so sharp about things like that and thinks on so many levels that I wouldn't be surprised if he was doing that. Now, it helped. I didn't, I didn't answer because it was, I was getting great information out of it. <laughs> As I told you on Twitter, I'm finally doing something about my weight and my health. I found a solution for weight loss, and it's Awaken 180. My friends in the media told me about Awaken 180. It's their go-to program to lose weight without killing yourself in the gym or taking any kind of medication. Just listen to the success stories. My boy, Kyle Draper, he dropped 30 pounds. Andy Grish dropped 105. And that's not it. Scott Zolak, Steve Logan, Dan Reeves, Dr. Laura R. Carmen, and add Cedric Maxwell to the list. It's only been about three weeks and I've already dropped about 15 pounds. Turn these trying times into a reason to get healthy like me. Call Awaken. Receive the same one-on-one coaching I'm getting at home or on Skype. Also access 1,000 recipes and tools you need to your weight loss from the company who has revolutionized the weight loss industry. Set up your first consultation today at awaken180weightloss.com. Jerry Krause has become set up as the villain. And of course, uh, you know, you can't deny, we can't, and he can't from his grave deny. Loved the, you, Bob. You know that. Loved you. Hated I, most of us. Loved well, you. I'm, I'm, yeah, thank you. Uh, for you for me. I, I was going to have to introduce that into the conversation somewhere. Uh, uh, we'll get to that. But he's been so – I want to talk about him now. We're, oh, this is the Jerry Krause chapter of the Ryan Goodman podcast today with, with, <laughs> renowned, with renowned Sam Smith. Um, yeah, he did like me, and I like Jerry. And I understand his foibles. I think I understand him very well. And there's no defense for the breakup of the team by the two Jerrys. By the way, there were more important ones, the one who signed the checks. Ultimately, right? So let's figure out. I can out. explain that one, by the way. Okay, good. Okay. So, you know, but he, so I'm, I'm defensive about the maligning he's taken here. The, the, the fact that he will not get any rebuttal for himself with, with between Michael and Scotty and the whole rest of the world that now has him set up as the absolute complete idiot villain. He was not an idiot. It was nobody's fool. He certainly had his personal foibles. Uh, I, we know that I, I, Steve Kerr's description of saying that he couldn't get out of his own way as a person was very apt. You know it. I know exactly, it. Right. Um, and, and, but it, that, but the, the, the impression, let me tell if you didn't know better, Sam, the impression that you would get from these first four episodes is that uh, he was a complete doofus and, 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 and he just lucked into everything. He hadn't, That's he, what I got. That's what I got from it. And, and Sam, you know, starting, he didn't, he inherited Michael. We know that. He inherited Michael. Everything else is him, starting with bringing Phil in as the assistant coach to Jerry, uh, to uh, Doug, and then the, the brilliant drafting of, of Pippen, the brilliant drafting of Oakley from Virginia Union, uh, the trade of Oakley for Cartwright, and, this, and that's in round one. And then in round two, the, the th- phase, right. Paxson, Kerr, on and on. I mean, so, oh, Horace Grant, I should dra- I mention that draft. All right, so. I, so I, I, I have, I, I got that off my chest now. <laughs> Speak, Jerry Krause. What is it? Just give me your overview of Jerry Krause. Yeah, well, you don't have that much time in the, uh, the <laughs> session for that. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, Michael too, as, 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 and then that's part of, you know, his personality of the edge he has, uh, getting the last word, winning, you know, winning the game in effect, win the conversation. And you can see, just like his Hall of Fame speech, you know, a lot of this is about settling scores. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm coming up too, you know, <laughs> it might turn in the, in the, in the bear too, you know, but, you know, Jerry, Isaiah, you know, so you can see How- down the road, you know, and, and, and you were at the Hall of Fame speech famously where he dragged that poor kid, the high school kid who got ahead of him, dragged him to, dragged him to Springfield to have him stand up and say, <laughs> hey, that's the guy who got on the varsity before me. <laughs> Michael doesn't forget any of these oh. things. Oh, this is evident. Uh, anyway, but, Jerry. Like you said, Jer- Jerry, uh, and, and, and in a lot of ways, and only for documentary purposes, it's really actually better. He, he and, I, and I think this will come around and your sentiment that you mentioned about Jerry, I kind of feel that's going to, you know, eventually after everyone gets beat up for a while, defenders sort of come out and it sort of switch the other way. And I, and I think as this goes on, there'll be more of that. Um, but I think if Jerry were around, he'd have made a mess of trying to defend himself and it'd have been a lot worse. And it had been, been, look, you doth protest too much that it must be true. And I think better that some of his defenders like you speak for him. Now the point was, yes, if you were around them every day, it was really, really difficult. You, you can't imagine. It, 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 this would be, the, the, the documentary showed one scene, which I thought was reflective and part of the reason. When they were coming back from Detroit in that championship, they swept them and now it's a, you know, effusive team celebration. Jerry's in the middle dancing down the aisle with the, with the other players. Yes. Now, really, come on. You're the CEO. You're the president of the corporation. Your employees are celebrating. Get out of the party. It's, you're not supposed to be there. Jerry never understood the distinction between his office because whatever the psychology was, you know, the fat kid who was trying to be one of the guys when he was growing up, they, you know, made fun of him. Words. You know how it is. If, if the kid who is rejected tries extra hard to be part of it, and now that kid became the boss. So, you know, in this sort of weakness of personality there, well, I'm going to take it out on all these, all these cool kids from high school who, who, you know, screwed over me. And that was what getting, not being able to get out of your own way was about. But, yes, the, the record, if, if Jerry had sat, sat back like Jerry Reinsdorf did, who was, was never around, you never saw any of those pictures other than when they, David Stern was presenting the trophy, you never saw Jerry Reinsdorf. If, and and that's that's the role that's your role when you're the executive of the team. If he stood back and stood on his accomplishments, as as you mentioned, you know, basically building a team around Michael Jordan. And of course, the frustration Michael felt was that when Jerry, you know, Reinsdorf and, and, and hired Kraus, but they took over the team in Michael's rookie season. That's when they bought the team and got control of it in like I think February of that year. Fired Rod Thorne right away. Uh, let Kevin Lockery go at the end of the season. Uh, so basically, Jerry's plan from that point was his dream. I'm going to rebuild this team through the draft. You know, he traded off all these uh, Orlando Woolriches and Juwan Oldham for draft picks, future draft picks. And you know that how popular that was in that era. You know, that's how Portland got number two, Tom Owens, for, for the pick that should have been Michael Jordan. You know, uh, James Worthy. Uh, you, you know what? All, you know all these great number ones to step in rule. So, but but now Michael comes in. He, you know he's coming off North Carolina, won a championship, played for championships. 
he, he walks in and, you know, we're going to embark on a five-year rebuilding process around you. And so, you know, he, he's trying to beat the Boston Celtics on his own, this 86 Celtics on the greatest teams of all time, and looking around, and Jerry's rebuilding everything around him. So, you know, they had they, – they, they didn't exactly have similar paths. They was parallel paths. Jerry was working on a plan, which worked out in the long run, that Michael was furious about basically from day one. That you're purposely trying to lose and using me as a box office attraction while you're not giving me a chance to compete. And so that's why he's always lobbying all those years, even into the championship, that first championship season, get rid of Pippen, get rid of Grant, get me Buck Williams, get me Walter Davis. I got to have veterans. We can't compete with the Celtics, you know, the, the Pistons, these kids are not tough enough. And so, you know, that, that dynamic grew between and Michael being you know much more clever much more articulate than Jerry Krause always had the upper edge in that and then of course as we've seen even with his teammates you know there's a streak of meanness in Michael too so Jerry was no match for this and he he, he couldn't control and he couldn't step back and say look what I've done look at look how we built this team basically all around the draft as you pointed out Michael didn't want to build around the draft as most people in that era didn't. I would think that Jerry would be a psychiatrist dream. You know, because <laughs> no, really, the, the, the path he took, who he was, this little round fat guy, uh, that he was not an athlete himself, he's, uh, uh, but worshiped sports and wound up making himself into what he did become, which was a, a, a two-sport person because, you know, he had extensive baseball background as well. As a matter of yeah. fact, it, it is alluded to in the first episode – that reminds me I hired him. He was a scout of basketball. We hired him as general manager. People wouldn't, you know, didn't realize he had an extensive basketball scouting background. But prior to that, everybody in basketball knew him. Yeah. You know what his official nickname is? Not crumbs, which you unearthed and, and put forth to the world. And, and you know, it, but you know what it was. I should know what it was. He's the sleuth. And, and Pat Williams gave him that nickname. Right. And way back when, Back in the uh, in the late se- in the seventies, when he was a, a functioning scout in the, in the fraternity of scouts, uh, Sam and, and Jeff, most of whom were ex jocks. I mean, obviously, most of, it was talking about the Bob Furry seniors and the Gene Bumper Tormolins of the Hawks and Dickie McGuire and many others. Many of them had been NBA players and had and and the anomaly and all of among all of them in this fraternity, this interesting fraternity, was this short little fat guy. From, from Chicago, from, uh, well, from Illinois, named Jerry Krause, who didn't belong with him. It was like the rain, it, it was like the Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer thing. You know, they didn't, he, he wasn't allowed to play the reindeer games. The socialization was, you know, he was completely the anomaly. But he, and he was very secretive, which was the nickname that. Uh, Bob, uh, I'll tell you an interesting story about Jerry's background. You might not even know yourself. He was a scout, basketball scout for the Bulls in the early 70s. He was hired actually in the, in the late 60s under Dick Mata yes. and he, he had messed up several first round picks they if you you may remember back they picked Jimmy Collins yep actually yeah, over, for Collins I know that over tiny Archibald in yeah. fact Dick Mata always would introduce Jerry as he I'd like you to meet Jerry Krause he's the guy who talked me out of tiny Archibald so I could take Jimmy Collins <laughs> and then also in the previous draft uh, Kennedy McIntosh who was the number one pick but the point of is in those drafts Jerry found Norm Van Leer and Cliff Ray. 
And then, and then actually Jerry became GM of the Bulls for a year in 1976 after Mata left. Uh, and, and it was an ill-fated because of Jerry. He was GM of the Bulls, and he tried to hire my, Ray Meyer as head coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his plan was to fund this unknown center, Robert Parrish from Centenary College, uh, to, to be the foundation of the team. Jerry kind of gets in a controversy over Ray Meyer because DePaul gets mad. You know, DePaul's a power in Chicago then, calls the Bulls, and Ray Meyer says, no, it's not true. I never said I wanted the job. And Jerry gets fired over this after, you know, maybe a year or less on the job. But he had a plan to build a team around Robert Parrish. And you see these picks. You know, he might have missed some of the first, but, but um, you know, Cliff Ray – Norm Van Leer, you know, small colleges, Earl Monroe, Winston-Salem, that's where he was the sleuth. He was at the places where nobody else wanted to go because all the former jocks wanted to hang around together, go see the main guys, and then go drink, whereas and Jerry would go off. The the historically black colleges. He was right. willing to tread where the others would never go. I mean, you, you, you know, whether it was the SWAC or the MEAC or the CIAA, he's the one guy that would go there unhesitatingly and, un, and fearlessly and, and cultivate a lot of friendships, one of which was with Big House Gaines. And, of course, he wound up hiring his son, Clarence, Clarence right. who's still involved in the NBA, as far as I know, correct? And, yeah, that, that was his advantage that he was willing to do that. All this is – well, I'm sure we'll go left unsaid in this whole documentary. And it's not the point of the – you know, of, of his, his background at all. I understand that. But I'm just – I just, I'm, I'm upset that people are going to come away with a distorted impression of him. Yes, he was his own worst enemy. Yes, he you just, you know, so you, you identified that scene was jarring because I know very well uh, uh, that uh, that's the way, that's exactly wh- what was his problem, was injecting himself into that social circumstance where he did not belong and with nowhere, no other person of his ilk would have done it, you know, but he had this insatiable need to, to right. be me, you know. And, and as I said, what a psychiatrist's dream, I, I swear. But also, also, and, and that's what the great, that, that's what, why this documentary is, is so great, is it's like a great novel. And every <laughs> great novel has to have these elements of theme, character, conflict, and a villain. It's not a great story. If you, got, yeah. the, you got the hero, you got to have the anti-hero, protagonist, antagonist. So you had to have, you had to have, a bad guy in it, and, and Jerry Krause was easily the choice. Sam, d- describe uh, for me the relationship between Michael and Scotty. What, what was it really like as you saw it? A very ambivalent relationship, and you see it playing out even to this day. Uh, I, I'll tell you, I, I'm, I guarantee you, Scotty was fuming about that opening episode where Michael said, you know, that he, he, he did, you know, about his holdout and it was selfish and all, um, you know, if, if Scotty's documentary would only be maybe a part or a half a part, maybe, but when that one comes out, he'll have his last word. So, you know, it was an interesting thing because Scotty and Horace were, were tied as close as together. I mean, it, you couldn't imagine how close two players were literally yeah, they, you know, they lived right close to each other in the neighborhood there, but they, they bought the same dogs that looked the same way. They bought the same cars. They really? dressed the same, and they called each other before they came to the games to see what each one was wearing so they oh, would no. have matching outfits. Wow. <laughs> wow, I didn't know that. 
their rela- it was uncant this incredible relationship <clears throat> but but Scotty was as as everybody come happens on everybody influenced by Michael's celebrity and orbit and the spotlight and so you know sort of like a you know, uh, uh, you know, I don't call him a bug, but you know, sort of like, you know, a moth. Was he like a puppy dog? Sam was he kind of like a little puppy dog that that followed him around and did what he wanted, or no? Well, it was, like I said, there was, was an ambivalence for Scotty because he would be drawn to that and he would want to get in Michael's crew and Michael's orbit because it was so exciting and attention. And he came from this small town area, and like I said, his incredible story of this guy who was a like a a towel, you know, towel kid. And it becomes a you know an NBA star, and so you know from rural uh, two room they had twelve people living in two rooms. We saw the you know the, the uh, father and his brother who were uh, you know medical problems, and so he's influenced by that. Horace is not. Horace is not interested. Horace is a marine. You know Johnny Bach and he were close. He, he he's kind of independent. So Scotty would leave and sort of depart Horace and go off to hang around with Michael. But when you hang around with Michael. You're secondary. It's not, there's no equals in Michael's group. There's him, you know, and the rest of them are sort of servants. So when you get to hang around with Michael, you don't get treated like one of the guys, you know, like, like you're another pro NBA player. You got treated like a subsidiary of Michael Jordan. So then Scotty would be offended by that. And he'd go back to Horace and say, man, it's this guy, you know, he's treating me and did this. And, you know, but then after a while, you know, he'd be sucked back into Michael. So Scotty was always sort of going back and forth, but you know, the one thing, and you remember too, Bob, back then there was no, you know, uh, trainer's room. There was no secret private rooms uh, to hide. You know, you got taped right in the locker room in front of everybody. And so I remember all the time Michael would be in there and he would be, he'd be literally, uh, you know, schooling Scottie Pippen, you know, how to take contact and follow through and finish and still, you know, draw a foul and score. And they were literally doing that, working that out sometimes in the locker room. You know, so Michael recognize Scotty as somebody who, who was athletic and could help him and would be a part of the team and try to work with him. You know, but Scotty at the same time always had this, this pull and push about Michael and Michael's orbit and whether to be part of it and then wanting to be his own individual. So it was, you know, it, it, it was a difficult time for Scotty to figure out who he was. I got a glimpse of that in the dream team experience, Sam. Uh, they at the bars, the Monte Carlo aspect of it. We spent the week in Monte Carlo uh, before going to Barcelona, and uh, we all were heading to the casino at nights. And Scotty and, and Michael, of course, was loved the casino as you can well imagine, uh, playing blackjack. And uh, Scotty would not play at Michael's table. He always played at a separate table. I think that was, I, I picked up on that. It was very right. annoying. Because and, he didn't want to get ripped on, you think? You think Michael just I, I, would yes, make fun of him? I think Sam yeah. just explained the whole thing. He didn't want to be in the aura again. He wanted to be, he needed to be separate. He didn't want to be overshadowed. He didn't, even in that circumstance, something could happen or he could just feel overwhelmed or, or, or you know, I understand that. I picked up on that. Second Scotty thing that I learned uh, along the way that fits into this uh, about who, who he is or who he was, I should say. I don't know who he is at the moment. I'm sure he's matured. Is that uh, I was told by someone who knew that w- uh, he was wearing glasses off the court, except yeah. he didn't get, need glasses. They were clear yeah. frames because he thought it made him look more uh, intellectual. Yes. No, that's true. That's true. I remember. <laughs> and if you remember, too, also, you might not. And Scotty, 
uh, you know, this was a, I don't say you go the character flaw financial, but he was, he was always impressed by money and fame and those kind of things. And he en ended up getting in some really terrible investments with his group of people had him buy an airplane. And so uh, oh. you, you may remember that story where he ended up suing him, trying to get back his money, but he literally bought a jet, you know, he bought a plane. These guys talked him into like a $30 million and he didn't have the money, you know, he didn't have the money for that. I mean, he's still fighting with the bulls over what it was. You know, and I know they made a big deal about Scotty and his contract and how badly he was treated. And, you know, but part of Scotty's thing was because of the family issues. But more than that, he had back surgery after his rookie season. And there was a question of, of whether he'd have a contract, a, a career at all. So he wanted the eight years because he didn't think he was going to get eight years. Uh -huh. So he thought four years in, he'd be out of the NBA and he's, he'd collect these four years for not playing because he was, you know, and. Of course, management was going to have to pay him. It wasn't like, you know, Ryan Stark's going to be able to go back and say, well, you can't, you're not, you know, we don't play for the last four years. But that's why he wanted those long contracts. And then, you know, if you remember in 98 in the finals, he didn't play at the end because his back went out again. And, and even though he signed that big deal at Houston, that's why, he, you know, that's why that thing didn't work. Because, he, he, you know, he, as an effective NBA high-level player, that he was done after that that surgery. But so... You know, so he was always caught with, you know, caught within that, try, try, so impressed by the money and the glamour and wanting that at the same time, but then making some bad decisions with it. You made a reference earlier uh, about when I brought up the idea of Jerry Krause's role in breaking up the team about Reinstorps. You were, so what, what, what's the deal? How, how do we differentiate our, the whole role of the two juries in this process? Well, let me tell you the real story about the breakup. Because they really didn't break up the team, but it's it, it, you know look, it, it, it's like a lot of a lot of stories that we see that's based on a true story. <laughs> but, but more than that, Phil and Michael were always ahead of everybody else in what they saw and and, and how it was operating, and they 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 recognized what was happening. And if, if you put yourself in you know if you look at that situation and, and look at Michael, now he sees Scotty is already off the rails. He he. He's, he's postponed his surgery that he was going to have in June to September just so he could purposely miss the first half of the season. Uh, Dennis has, has, in the 96-97 finals, when he goes to Salt Lake City and condemns Mormons, gets, you know, fine, you know calls him a cult and all this sort of stuff, um, gets a technical foul in every game of that playoffs. Every single game of the playoffs, he had a technical foul somewhere. So Michael has known seen this too. So he's seen Scotty and Scotty and Har and Dennis are are they're going over the edge here. And you heard Michael's reference too. They did the little scene with uh, Dennis going to Las Vegas in the documentary, where Michael says, "Well, Scotty's out, and you know now Dennis is going to leave, and I'm thinking I'm all alone." And, and you know, okay, Tony Kukoc is there, Ron Harper's there, Luke Long. You know, they had a lot of players, but Not this great. is the way Michael's viewing the thing. I'm by myself, you know, so. Michael, I'm pretty sure after 96-97 season, you know, he's built up, he's worn out. You know, he, he needs to get one more year of that money because he got the, uh, the one $30 million deal. So he's coming back for that year. But I think he recognizes that that thing is over. And what a great thing to fall in his lap that Jerry Krause has manufactured this thing about Phil will never come back. You know, Michael, who is always looking for these motivations, you know, uh, uh, Jeff Van Gundy says I'm a con man and, you know, Dean Smith wouldn't put me on the cover and 
LeBradford Smith, you know, got 30 points and I'm going to come back and, you know, get him and, you know, so he's, you know, his whole career is manufacturing these slights and insults to motivate him. What great motivation. Jerry Krause is trying to ruin us. And so now he's got something again, Phil recognizes too. Phil, Phil had this thing, and he mentioned he had this unusual background. His parents were Pentecostal ministers, yeah. and he talked about that. And um, But part of his thing, and, and so he grew up in the congregational, uh, parents had congregations, and he always saw his team that way, as this is my congregation. That's why he, he saw these players as individuals and worked with them individually, and, and you saw how effective that was and how necessary but he always said, he talked about a, a minister with his congregation has seven years, that they, they lose, your voice gets lost after that, and it just blends in. So seven years for him was 96, 95, 96. So he's thinking at the end of 96, I might leave. And, that, and that's where this Tim Floyd thing came up, that Tim Floyd in Seattle saw Jerry, because there was nothing to it. So what happened that summer before he went back to Montana, Ron Harper gets a delegation of players and they go to Phil's house. Can you please come back? You know, we need you and all this stuff. Okay, so he comes back, 96, 97, they win again. Well, now Phil is is convinced he's done. So Jerry Reinsdorf goes to his house that summer, flies to Montana, never done anything like that before. You know, Phil's up in remote Montana uh, and they work out a one-year deal. But Jerry tells him, you know, we're going to have a rebuilding coming up at some point here. Michael's 35 and Dennis 36 and Scott, you know, whatever, Scotty's Lee. You know, stay around for the rebuilding. Now, I don't want any part of rebuilding. You know, that's not what I do. I need a sabbatical. I'll sign for the one year. So he recognizes this thing, too. You know, obviously, Reinsdorf has told Jerry Krause, you know, hey, Phil, this is his last year. He's not going to come back. So Krause, in his inability to both state things because now he's blamed Phil. And then this is what happened with that. <laughs> Another of the character flaws of Jerry Krause, not independent of his ability as a scout and a GM, but he, he hired Phil. And, and when a time when Phil wasn't getting any traction from the NBA coaching in the CBA fifth year, nobody's going to hire him. You know, I was viewed in the seventies, a hippie wrote a book about drugs. Yep. Maverick. Yeah. NBA, he's he's toxic. So Jerry gives him a chance, you know. So and Phil worked. Phil tried hard, but you know I, I didn't want to give you that mental image before. But you know, like a thing like Crowster, when the players didn't get massages, Jerry would go in and demand a massage in front of all the other players, take off all his clothes to get a massage. Now that's an image you don't want to keep with you if like you're having dinner later today. <laughs> you know, so, but that's the stuff he would do. So. Phil tried to moderate this thing over the years, and finally, you know, they were sort of coming apart. And Jerry believed that Phil owed him for his life, you know, that, hey, if not for me, you'd be a failure, and you owe me for the rest of your life. And that's not the way it works. Phil came in, did his job, delivered the championships. He didn't owe Jerry anything. It's not the way Jerry viewed the world. So, and the Pippin trade thing was a great example, and you would know that too, Bob. You know, ML Carr, you know, loses every game that season. You know, so the Boston can get Tim Duncan. 15 wins. He wins. They get three in the lottery. So now Patino comes in. He, he's not coaching number three in the lot. He, he's got to play, play. So he reaches out to the Bulls for Pippen. They should have made this deal. You know, they, they would have had McGrady, who, again, a small college guy that, that Jerry had found, was pursuing for years. 
they would have also had they sort of had three six with the Boston picks and a yeah. veteran. I don't know which veteran it was. So they were to get that. They probably win the next season with with that plus Rodman Jordan, you know, the team they had. And then they get McGrady going forward, then they don't have to go back to the bottom like they did. But Reinsdorf, even though Jerry kind of agrees to deal with the Boston, Reinsdorf says, no, you know, we have a chance to win next season. We're going to keep it together. So, you know, he like all owners, he's, he's got the last veto. So Reinsdorf kind of kept that together. And then, but Reinsdorf also knowing in 97, 98, that Phil, Phil is, you know, he's leaving. He's told me that for personal reasons that make sense. And I think Michael... Because in 92, 93, a lot of people don't realize how at the end of the season, Michael was telling teammates, this is probably the last you've seen of me. You know, he's just worn out from these two years and what they've done, gone through and Dennis and the celebrity and how big he'd gotten. And he was just ready too. And so, yes, uh, they were breaking up. I don't believe that Jerry Krause and, and Jerry Reinsdorf instigated that breakup in every way, but, but that Michael and Phil saw it as the perfect conclusion for that run that if they come back now they didn't know that then but Michael you know has his cigar cut during the lockout and can't grip a ball at the rest of that his right hand the rest of that season so it wouldn't wouldn't have been able to shoot probably but he came back but what if they come back in this mess Dennis goes to LA blows that up Scotty goes to Houston blows that up you know Luke Longley goes to Phoenix, can't play, you know, all this stuff. They go into that next season and they don't make the playoffs. How's the legacy for Michael Jordan then? Are you looking forward to how they're going to handle Michael's baseball hiatus in this documentary? Well, you know, I'm pretty sure Michael has had approval of what it is. So I, I, you know, the other thing about Michael's, Michael's baseball thing, it, it wasn't as bad as it was portrayed to be. He'd come, you know, he really worked at it. That first year was pretty bad. He, he didn't play well. And he actually, amazingly enough to all of us, he had no power. That was the amazing thing. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he couldn't hit home runs. You know, this big, strong athlete, you know, figure, you know, bigger than everybody. He, he, you know, he, he, he just couldn't get the ball that far out. But then when he went to the Winter League in, in, in Arizona, he, he actually played pretty well. And, and the, in not, not, not just for publicity purposes, the scouts were saying, you know, that he's got a really good chance of being a, a September call-up uh, in, you know, in the 95 season. That uh, Not for the strike. They had a baseball strike still going on, and they wanted to make him a replacement player. And that's why he left then. He wouldn't have come back in 95 at that time unless that was going on in baseball. But he really thought he could get to the majors, and they were telling him that, hey, you know, it's not a publicity stunt anymore. So I think, you know, I think that I think there'll be more of that in I it. That, I'm, I'm that thinking more about it a little bit. Uh, but, uh, have, I, I think more about the motivation for it, uh, the, the real reasons, you know. Well, the, the real reason was he was burned out from, you know, from uh, not, not, and I'm not saying the Jordan rules. That was sort of part of the start, but all the gambling thing that developed, you know, and I, and I don't know if they'll go into that because, you know, I can imagine in, in this era, he, he, he skips a trip to the White House and he says, hey, I, I met, it was, this was George Bush one. He said, I met him when he was vice president. I know him. And he said, I got a family trip. And, you know, he's having a press conference saying this. <laughs> you know, I've scheduled a family trip because they're going to do it before the start of the season. You know, in 91, they win. Everybody disperses. So right before the start of camp, they were going to go in the White House. And so he says, well, I, I had a family trip planned. And, he, you know, he can't, and it can't force you to go because it's before the season started. So 
Um, he says, I got a family trip and family's even more important than the president. And everybody, oh yeah, Michael Jordan trip. So, okay. Then it turns out he goes to a gambling weekend. We didn't know that, but when we found, we found out that because the bail bondsman who was financing the weekend got murdered. Uh, and among the participants was a convicted drug dealer. Now, Michael, this was unbeknownst to Michael who he was going to play with, but you know, if you're going to an illegal gambling weekend, it's probably not going to be high school science teachers there. <laughs> said maybe that, you know, eight USA series of the drug dealing teacher. Uh, so now this blows up, you know, with Slim Buhler, who was the drug dealer and all this sort of stuff. And then, you know, then this guy comes out uh, in California, said Michael Welsh, they wrote a book, Michael Welsh done all these golf decks, yep, over yep, a million yep. dollars. Yep. And, and then, then we go to New York in the playoffs and he goes to Atlantic City. I mean, uh, yeah, Atlantic City between yep. games and the New York Times of all. Dave Anderson, the wonderful, calm Dave Anderson is outraged at how can Michael Jordan do the right big stories in the New York Times is, you know, you know, this is such a horror. I remember being asked about it. And he said, well, he went between games and he got home at two. I said, that's unbelievable. He usually gets in at five. <laughs> and then he scores 48 points. And yeah. So, yeah. and the other part of it was, you know, he had been, like I said, he had been this most accommodating, open, you know, you know, you come into Chicago and you walk and sit down in the locker for an hour. You didn't, have to, you didn't make an appointment. No one like that with Larry. One like, you know, maybe Magic was the only one. But him, Michael and Michael was like that too. You could walk in, unbe- unannounced, sit down, and he'll talk to you for an hour, talk to anybody, local radio station. He was just the best of the other. Yeah. And so now he's feeling like, hey, after all these years, I, I accommodated every one of you guys, did everything, did every appearance, every walk-off interview, every everything, and this is the way you treat me? This is what you give me all this? And he wasn't kicked out of the league. The league wanted, trust me, they wanted no part of that investigation. They wanted no part of losing their biggest moneymaker and biggest attraction. And we at the Tribune, after it happened, we started doing an investigation and we go down and they interviewed Slim Buhler. It was our investigative reporters. And everywhere they went, they said, well, what did the NBA investigators uh, ask you? They said, well, we haven't heard from anyone from the NBA. They didn't, they didn't talk to anybody. They didn't want to hear any of this. There was nothing involving Michael, pushing Michael Jordan out of the NBA. But then... So he was burned out and his father, and, and actually he had talked to George Shin back in the late eighties about playing for one of, you know, he had a minor league team in Charlotte when he owned the team down there. And he talked to Jerry Reinsdorf because his dad always talked about baseball and, and he wanted Michael to be a baseball player when he was young. And, and uh, they had toyed with this idea, but could never work it out about playing a summer of a ball. And then, so he's burned out. And then when his father got murdered, he's like, you know what? Enough is enough. Let me get away from this. And, and, and that's what baseball is about. So have you been surprised that, that he's stepped away completely and, and, and hasn't been the limelight? Like with Larry, I expected this, right? Larry, not a guy that really wanted to deal with people that much. Uh, I'm not saying Michael's magic. Nobody's magic, right? In, in wanting all the adulation and needing to be around people all the time. But I just, I've been surprised that Michael has taken – such a step back because he does like the attention or he he did like the attention so much and now he's just kind of an owner who's got nothing to do with it really I mean surprised or no I'm surprised about 
he's come back to this level. I never expected to see this. Actually, you know, the, 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 to me, for the public, the best parts is seeing him relaxed, open, talking, joking, you know, looking at the thing with uh, Isaiah Thomas, and just like he would with his friends. Eh, bullshit, you know, there's no way. That's who he is. And, and that's who I never expected to see ever again. I didn't think anybody would see that again, you know, because he had become such a recluse. Yeah. You know, the truth was, while he liked the acclaim, he didn't like the acclaim. I, I remember even in the 80s, you know, when he still wasn't winning anything and he was gone, he would say to us, you know, you guys don't realize, you don't appreciate what this is. You guys can go grocery shopping or go to a movie, you know, and I can't. I, I say, well, I wish somebody could go grocery shopping for me. I don't like doing that. You know, but he always was moaning about, you know, the lack of privacy. And he had said many times, he said, when I, I remember a lot of these too, even in the first championship run in, in the early 90s, he said, when I leave, you guys will never see me again. I'll never be around. And, and that's what he was holding to. And so I'm more surprised that he came back because, look, he's got a new family. Uh, he, he remarried, got young babies. In fact, I ran into, and again, you, I mean, you asked me before, I'm not close to him in, in any way. None of us are. Um, but he was always, he's always cordial. We saw him in Charlotte a couple of times and, hey, how you doing? And when he said, hey, we work, we work for the Bulls now. You sold out. You're on the other side, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but so, you know, I said, hey, what's the, he said, yeah, I just got back from changing diapers. And, you know, and so, he, you know, he's built a golf course down there. And I think he lives in Jupiter where all the, NBA, uh, the golf pros live. And he's built this private course, you know, supposedly spectacular. It's $200,000 initiation fees. And of course, it's got a waiting list. And so I'm shocked he's doing this. You know, the notion is, well, people said, well, he was jealous that LeBron's getting so much attention. I don't buy that stuff. Uh, I don't know exactly why he's doing it. But what surprises me, he's come back out. We've never seen him in Chicago. He, he's never, the only time he's ever been here, I can remember since 98, was for uh, that memorial for Johnny Kerr. And he came in for that. But other than that, he's never been here. And even at the All-Star game this year, he didn't, he didn't make an appearance. It's amazing. He could have walked out and got his huge standing ovation. You know, he didn't have to talk to anybody, but we never saw him. So, well, yeah. You're, you're, we'll, we'll leave you on this. La- last thing, your, your favorite uh, Michael story, your favorite, it can be anything for, for good, for bad, for ugly, whatever it was, what is the story that, that you will always kind of remember? You know, if you're telling your kids, your grandkids, uh, I cover Michael Jordan, what is it? I obviously don't have one because I got so many, just like Bob would. You know, I took one of them they showed, one of my favorites was in that documentary where we were at game five, which was really a turning point then. They lose that Cleveland, as Bob knows, was supposed to be the team in the 90s, not oh, the yeah. Bulls. They were, they were you, know, oh, you know, Mark Price and that Brad Doherty with the pick and roll, Ron Harper, the Harper. Athlete, Larry Nance, they had Hot everything. Hot Plate Williams. Yeah, you know, not, yeah, not Plate. Plate was bigger than Rod, remember. Not Rod on. Yeah, so, so you know, and, and uh, the, as he said, and, and it's true, they, the, the Cavs won six in a, six, all six games that season. And, and what he did mention was game six. It's back in uh, the Chicago. Cavs, everything's clinched, and it's three and six. Cavs are going to play them that season, I mean, in the playoffs. So it's the last game of the season. Cavs play nobody, play all their, uh, uh, all their, reg- all their reserves. The Bulls play all their starters, like 40-some minutes, and the Cavs blow them out. You know, 
Randolph Keys, if Bob remembers, it, like the 30. And, and so we're thinking, there's no way. They got no shot at this team. There's no way they can beat this team. But I'm, I'm, well, I think it's Michael Jordan there. They'll steal a couple of games. Now, Cavs got some injuries, which turned things on. But, okay, so he, he walks into that. You know, and who does that before the game? You know, Larry, you know, the game's about to start, this great moment. Team may be broken up, all this sort of stuff. And he's going, I'll kick your ass and I'll kick your ass. And so that was one. But when I remember, I was telling my son this one. He was uh, like six months old. This was in 89, 89. 89. And I, I'd had him, had him with me and, I'm, and we had to practice. And so he's baby and I'm holding him. But I had my wife was off somewhere and I had to bring him. So I got the tape recorder out and I'm, you know, I'm listening to interview and, and He's my son, the baby is playing with the tape recorder, grabbing the tape recorder. And so I look at it, Michael, and I said, see, see, he doesn't care much for you. He said, give him six months. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, not only always had the last word, always, it actually, yeah, one thing, they, I don't want to go into it in detail, they will, but it was sort of like, and I, and I felt badly about it. I'll just go quickly. And, and I've kind of defended Michael on this in recent this this republicans buy sneakers too thing mm-hmm. which which the world has cheap shotted him on it wasn't a political statement if bob remembers the 80s because of the salary cap the nba wasn't in trouble the players were basically in agreement hey we're not going to be controversial about issues like this even kareem who boycotted the 68 olympics sat with ali you know when he was kicked sure. out of boxing you didn't hear from Kareem about it. Nobody was doing that stuff. And so I, and I'd worked in politics. I'd worked in Washington. And so it was a hobby, stuff I knew. I actually spent a short time with a U.S. senator as, a, as his press secretary, Lowell Weicker from Connecticut. I was on his staff. So I, I would talk to him. You know, I would bring up these subjects with Michael. And he didn't want to deal with it. So, you know, it was like a, it was like a you know, beat it, Sam Smith. You know, it's, it's like a last word. Uh, quip and it's been turned into a political philosophy that's been unfairly used against them. But that was the nation too. Michael always had a great last line. You know, whatever you said, he could usually top you with, you know, what kind of a quip or a joke. Just so sharp that way. And at least, you know, on that one, I'm sure that's going to come out somewhere in this documentary. And, you know, people have been beating them over the head with this over the years. And it's really hypocritical because, you know, whatever else anyone else is doing, this was not, you know, him just selling out for the money. All right, both, both of you. I'm, I'm going to let you leave on this one, both of you. Uh, the greatest player uh, in NBA history is blank. Yeah, Michael Jordan, always, of course. I always have to have the differentiation. You have to put the, all the centers in another, when, when there were really centers. Only Bob. I ask him a simple question, a no, simple question. A, the best, you know better. The best, <laughs> no. The, when you say greatest player, you're talking about, Mastering, I call it master of the game, all the arts of the game, passing, dribbling, shooting, defense, competitiveness, et cetera, et cetera. And, it, and it, it's restricted to guys between 6'5 and 6'9, okay? That, that's just the way it is. The answer is Michael Jordan. And very simple reason is this. If I'm playing for my life tonight, yeah. the greatest competitor, it, it's, it's Michael Jordan. That's the answer. That's my answer. Let me add one thing, and Bob and I actually could do a podcast on this. Because to me, and I always, uh, not always, but I get into this debate about the greatest guard and whatever, but the greatest point guard to me, because the guy who dominated the game from all elements at his position was Oscar Robertson. Now, unfortunately, he was playing against 
the greatest team and by far the greatest executive in the history of the game. What Red Auerbach did to put together those Celtics teams in the 60s transcends anything anybody's did. The vision he had and to unite Bill Russell with the pieces he had. And Oscar essentially had a play against that. But Oscar offensively, defensively, athletically, intelligence-wise IQ, to me, was sort of the perfect NBA player. Human clinic of basketball. Right. Oscar. Right. And, yeah. and it doesn't get the credit for, you know, no. those Magics are great. And Magic's great. I agree. But I would, I would always take Oscar. Oh, that's not, uh, he just didn't have the team and, and was playing against the greatest dynasty ever. No, he was a clinic. And I, I was told if you want to, I once had a mentor in basketball who said, if you want to learn how to dribble, watch Oscar. If you want to learn how to shoot, watch Oscar. If you want to learn how to position for rebound, watch Oscar. And, you know, it was, he was a clinic without question. And uh, that's, I'm, I'm, and I, it's, we, you, people like us need to keep that name in front of people. So they don't forget him when these discussions are held. Sam, listen, we, we really appreciate you joining us. Uh, have, have the book sales spiked again? Have they? Have you gotten kind of a second wind here of, of Jordan rules? Well, let me tell you something about that. I'm making exactly the same on book sales as I am from doing this podcast. Because <laughs> it's out of print. Well, you, so there's no. There's no more copies available. Right, not selling at all. Is that true? There's yeah. no more copies available. No, it's out of print, and they're not printing more, from what I was told. Oh. So, Sam, you, we, we got to get on this. This, this is a lost opportunity. As Bob wouldn't, it is, but as Bob would know, as somebody who's written books, the yeah. publishing industry knows oh. very little about selling books. Yeah, oh, don't, don't, get me, don't get me started. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Listen, Sam. Meanwhile, people, maybe they can find this one, folks. There yes. you go. There That's you a, go. A lot of Oscar. Okay, there you go. I'm going to read the Jordan rules again. Uh, probably once the, the 10 episodes are over. But listen, we, we really, I know how busy you are. Bob knows how busy you are. Hey, this is uh, great. We, this was fun. This, honestly, uh, these are the best for me. I, I, I hope you guys enjoy talking to each other because I'm just here along for the ride and, and really enjoy hearing the stories because I was, you know, in my teens and 20s um, really watching this thing and hearing the inside of, uh, all the stories from both of you. Listen, I, I can I could sit here all day long. Well, so Jeff, I appreciate you great, it. You do great work, but it's always such an honor for me to be with Bob. So I'm I'm, I'm glad to be able to. Uh, Thanks, it's it's great to see you. Again. No, we we know that's why you did it. Don't worry, you're not offending <laughs> me at all. But I appreciate it, guys, and uh, be safe. And and thanks again, Sam. Yeah, so, thank you. Take care, guys.